left, right. Yo, and welcome to the show. This is a pretty cool episode. We brought on Dr. Lauren Chimilewski of Harmony Plastic Surgery in New York City. She answered a lot of questions I had. She answered a lot of questions that you guys had about plastic surgery. Um, I'm sure you'll have some questions, so throw them in the comments. Uh, and uh, let me know what you think. Let me know. Will you get plastic surgery? Have you had plastic surgery? Sorry, I had to ask. Um, but what are your thoughts on plastic surgery? And uh, we will share them with Dr. Lauren and throw them back out in the comments. Thank you, guys, and see you on the other end. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. Looks like we are live. Welcome, everyone. This is Sip Talk, episode 147. My name is Justin DiGiulio out of my basement in New Jersey, joined, as always, by James the Bosnia Boswell out of Charleston, South Carolina. James is an accountant, philosopher, professional bartender, and professional referee. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Lauren Chimilewski. Uh, you own, am I right? You own Harmony Plastic Surgery, and you're That's a board... Correct board certified plastic surgeon out of new york new york that's manhattan new york city central park south to be exact Correct. welcome welcome to the show dr lauren it's very nice to have you great to be here so i, I gotta ask you i heard james crack a beverage uh during the intro there did you bring a drink it's sip talk of course all right what, what are you drinking today i have a heineken a heineken oh very is it the is it the heineken zero it's the Heineken Light. It is a school night, but it's Heineken Light. It has alcohol. <laughs> it's a school. You're still you're still trying to learn how to become a professional plastic surgeon. You got school tomorrow. Right. Exactly. Uh, well, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I got a little habiki here. I'm gonna I'm gonna pour in a second. I found some some more habiki, um, which has been my drink of choice lately. It's a it's a nice uh, nice drink out of my my wine cellar. It's actually the the boiler room in the basement, so I think it actually keeps the beverages warm. Uh, James, you got a a bush ice. Is it, yep. cold? Is it cold today? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I've got a fridge in my garage now. Like I'm I'm no longer living like a heathen, well, in, in that respect at least. <laughs> so, uh, Doctor Lauren, it's really nice to have you. We met. Was it this spring? Mm -hmm. this yep. Spring 2021. March, I think. Yeah. And you so were uh, starting my search. You were looking to make a move into a into a new home, which is where you are now. Correct. Very exciting. I my first home, big it milestone. Looks, looks a little different than it did before. Did you uh, did you paint the walls? I did. Yep. Okay. Put you had furniture in. We got a big old TV. Um, starting to feel like home. The furniture issue, I don't know if you've heard, has been terrible with the pandemic. Oh yeah, I I I told you I moved to Jersey uh, in the fall time, and it's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. You, I'm you still see... waiting for a couch that I ordered in May. So, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you, if you see something, so you have to shop. So, for those of you who aren't aware or haven't tried to buy furniture lately, and this is especially problematic when you make a fresh move because you have lots of furniture you have to buy. If you see something in the store, they don't have it at the store. <laughs> you have to you have to buy it and it gets shipped to you. And there's major supply chain issues. So yeah, it's sitting on a cargo ship somewhere in like you know some somewhere. port. Off in California, yeah. And uh, and then if you see it online, it's it, you're just as screwed. Like at least if they have it on the showroom floor, you know it's made it into your state at least. But but if you see it online, it could it could be in China or uh, or somewhere else. So look, we got we got lots of questions for you today. Um, first first and foremost, we want to know all about plastic surgery. I know nothing about it. I had very very few thoughts about plastic surgery until okay. we met. And then, uh, you know, I had a lot of questions I didn't, I didn't really want to ask because we our, our conversations were mostly New York and, and a, apartment centric. First question. <laughs> oh. Do you do hair? Do I do hair transplantation? I do not. <laughs> I know. Well, it was great having good, you. <laughs> I know a good person who does. <laughs> That's great. I'm so really I can looking. Make a recommendation, but I don't do it. No. 
thank you for that. So um, you never gave me a list of things that were off limits, by sure. the way. So I'm I'll gonna... let you know if they come up, but yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I'll do, I'll do my best. To... Yeah, we're going to ask you to disclose your entire patient list. Gotcha. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll do my best to try to stay PC. Uh, James didn't really run any questions by me ahead of time, so. Nope. We'll, no we'll, uh, we'll Shoot see from how the So, but look, right, right off the bat, my, you know, I was trying to come up with a list of questions for you and I, you know, I, I want to know how you got started, but also, you know, I recognize that at some point in time, there was a 13 or 14 year old girl who was thinking I could be an astronaut. I could be a police officer. I could be a teacher. And at, at some point plastic surgery came up and I assume it's, it's a long, it's a long setup, right? Like, if I just decided I want to do plastic surgery in like a couple of months, it wouldn't be something. I wouldn't recommend that. I think you got a good thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may not, it may not be this podcast, but the real estate <laughs> thing. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I'm curious what, what got you into plastic surgery? Where did you, where did you make up your mind to pursue this? Yeah. So the short story is I didn't know what I wanted to do. So for anybody out there who's still young and doesn't have a career path, like you don't have to be, you know, born knowing you're going to be a surgeon. So I went all the way through college and I still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, um, which was a very scary period. <laughs> um, but I took three years to figure it out after undergrad. And then um, once you make the choice to go to medical school. That's an additional four years after undergrad. And then after you're done with medical school, you then decide on what specialty you wanna go into. Um, so I chose plastic surgery for a variety of reasons. We can talk about that. But then that was another six years of, tra of surgical training after medical school. So if you go all the way through and you know what you want to do, that's a total of, you know, whatever that is, eight and six, 14 years of post-secondary education, which is a long road. So if you were going to start that now, Justin, I would say probably not a great idea. Probably not. I was, yeah. I was, I was really concerned. It sounds, sounds very exciting. Well, I actually have a very dear friend who is a lawyer and has been practicing. He's, you know, in his early 40s and decided he was going to go to med school and just started. So people do it. It's just, it's a long road. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, it, I mean, it's, you know, I am a professional uh, in real estate, but, but, but we are not the same level of professionals, right? Like yeah. you could, you could graduate high school and become a, a real estate agent. And if you're good at it, you could, you're effectively a professional. Different um, skill set. Absolutely. And, and yeah, your skills get honed, but, but there's a really low overhead to get into it. So so you had your mind made up at really at year, was it at year four or at year eight? It was, well, I made up my mind for medicine after college. Um, I did something called a post-baccalaureate program after I graduated, which kind of allowed you to dip your toe into the medical world and see if it'd be something that you'd like. Plus you have to take all those prerequisite, you know, physics and biochem and all that stuff. Um, in order to apply for medical school. So in that period of time, I actually met a mentor who turns out he's a emergency medicine doctor. And at that time I thought I wanted to go into emergency medicine. So um, that's what got me into medical school. And then what got me into plastic surgery was kind of the same thing. Like you get to try a little bit of everything when you're training. Um, and for me, it was mostly a process of elimination. It was like, you know, PEDS, not for me, you know, OBGYN, not for me. And then I started getting into more surgical things and I loved plastic surgery because, um, it's just, it's, we get to do artistry on the human body. It's amazing. So, you know, and that includes everything from, you know, restoring the body after like a cancer operation um, to healing a major wound after like massive trauma to then doing, you know, altering perfectly normal people cosmetically, um, you know, to enhance something. So it's just, it's a really cool profession. You operate from anywhere from kids to adults, women, men. Um, it's, it's really cool. And it's not, that's the thing about it too. It's not just, you know, boob jobs and, you know, nose jobs and stuff like that. It's a very diverse 
profession. How much of your work is boobs and noses? Well, I do 100% cosmetic now. So I, when I first started out, I did much more of the reconstructive and the trauma stuff. I did that for about three years. Um, let's say I got my feet wet. <laughs> and then I decided just to go and move on and do cosmetics. So I do, that's 100% of what I do now. It, it still sounds like a stressful position, but less stress and kind of less severe. That's in a different way. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, you, obviously, there's a lot of precision involved, I, I would imagine. But um, just, I mean, you mentioned you had the colleague in the emergent, emergency medical field. And uh, my sister is a PA and she shares with me some of these crazy stories. It's not it's not something it's, it's very high stress. Um, it's not, it definitely wouldn't be for me. So it sounds like, it sounds like this is a, a good position for you. You, uh, it, you know, high risk, high reward, right? It's very satisfying. Like when you get a good result with somebody, or if you cure somebody, or if you restore somebody back to their pre-morbid state, it's very satisfying, but yeah, it is very stressful. Our malpractice premiums are incredibly high, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, there's a lot of other stuff that's not as pretty, but it's, it's very satisfying profession when you get to actually do what you love to do. Now on, on that note, you mentioned malpractice. My thinking is that kind of the way the culture has been shifting lately is people are really so happy. Uh, if something's not a hundred percent perfect, they want to, they want to, so do you, have you noticed a trend upwards? Do you think the premiums are going up because there's the same quality of, of outcome when it comes to the work that's being done, but just people are kind of getting more picky and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, entitled, yeah. entitled? Maybe entitled. To I, you know, I don't know that it's changed much. I think we in general live in a very litigious society and that goes all over the place, not just in plastic surgery or not just in medicine. I mean, kind of in everything. That's just kind of the way our culture is. Um, I think malpractice has been high for a long time. I mean, I'm thinking independent. It's very, you know what I mean? So I don't know that people are necessarily, they're not going up. Um, they've always been up. I'm just thinking about malpractice and in, in like plastic surgery and like, someone sues you for malpractice because they don't think that the surgery came out right. And like the best defense would be like, your honor, they were ugly before. <laughs> May not be the best defense, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you're right. Because the majority of people that I operate on are perfectly normal people. You know, I'm, we're doing something that they're electing to do knowing all, full well, all the risk benefits alternatives before and potential complications but the problem with that is you're starting with a perfectly normal person. So to have any complication is horrific because they were perfectly normal to start with, if that makes sense. Um, but yes, people, we have to educate the patient, set their expectations and just let them know all the possibilities and then they choose to move forward or not, you know, so. So uh, I just wanted to, because uh, I want to find out a little bit more about some of the crazy things that, that you've done and maybe some crazy stories and, and a little bit more about the surgery that you, that you do on a regular basis. But I want to step back because we were just talking about how you got into it. And now you own your own practice. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how, how did that come about? Because I know as somebody who opened a brokerage, business ownership isn't, isn't for everybody. Right. Uh, but, uh, what's, uh, what kind of drove you to do that? And if you don't want to get into specifics, you don't have to, but, but I imagine that there's a big leap that somebody would take from just being a surgeon in a, in a clinic and then going on their own. Yeah. So right out of training, I, I joined a practice. I was an employed physician with, um, a small group, um, which for me was a much easier transition. Cause you're right. When you're training, you're very coddled. There's a lot of handholding, you know, there's always someone supervising you and going directly from that to private practice or having your own practice would have been too big of a jump for me. So I did a little bit of a transition period. And during that time, being in private practice and outside of a more academic or hospital based setting, I learned a lot. So I actually took the opportunity of during the the pandemic when kind of everything shut down and we weren't allowed to do anything um, to do a little bit more research into what does it take to be a business owner? How do you start your own PLLC? You know, all the stuff that they don't teach you in medical school. Um, and I had a lot, a couple of mentors help me along the way as well. So I certainly like credit them to helping me along, but I knew after being employed for a certain period of time that I wanted the autonomy 
And I, I knew the kind of practice I wanted to build and it wasn't necessarily the brand that that practice um, kind of portrayed. So, you know, I, it, was a, it was a huge leap, don't get me wrong. Um, but now that I'm in it and still constantly learning on my feet every single day, um, I love it. So, you know, I can really, the product I'm putting out there is 100% me. Um, I get to call the shots. I have all the responsibility on the other hand. Um, but, you know, especially in a field like plastic surgery, like you don't work with a lot of other plastic surgeons. We don't tend to be group people. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we tend to work with other specialties, but not necessarily with each other as much, which is, you know, a shame, but most, you know, especially in Manhattan, most plastic surgeons are in solo practice. Which props to you you didn't uh, you didn't go and open a practice in like wisconsin or somewhere in the suburbs you you picked midtown manhattan yeah you're in central addressing Park. the extreme need of plastic surgeons on the upper east side <laughs> yeah uh yeah well you got you get a great location uh right off of central park so that's so that's yeah. very cool um yeah. and uh do you see you have pretty heavy client volume already yeah, I mean, I think we're doing pretty well. We had a huge surge right after the pandemic, which we thought was due to like pent up demand because they shut down all elective surgery for a couple of months. They weren't allowed to do any cosmetic or elective surgery. And so a lot of that combined with the, pe- the fact that people were working from home and had more downtime to recover from surgeries. So that's kind of leveling off now again. And it's going back to, I guess, more normal time or normal volume. Um, How much of the post-pandemic bump that you saw was liposuction from people sitting on their butts for like six months? Well, I, I mean, that's almost that's the majority of what I do is body repentering liposuction stuff. So it was a lot. <laughs> wow. Um, that was a real thing. So it was, it's funny because you had these two populations. There was the people who got COVID and lost all this weight from being sick. And then there were the people that were sitting at home all day working from home who gained weight. So, you know, I, there was a good deal of post pandemic body repentering. <laughs> uh, so, so, a question for you is my understanding for the most part is that these procedures have pretty much always been for the very rich population, but I'm seeing a lot more of them now. Now I've never looked into any of these procedures, so I don't know anything about the cost, but I assume that the cost has come down to a more reasonable amount because it's becoming more popular or maybe because there's more competition in the field. But is it, is it, is it, I mean, you're in Manhattan, so I get that, but is it, is it mostly super wealthy or do you see a lot of kind of middle-class clientele coming through? Yeah, not at all. So plastic surgery has become extremely accessible to most people. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one is absolutely competition. You know, there's, you know, a lot of practitioners, not even necessarily plastic surgeons, but, you know, PAs, nurse practitioners, other specialties who are doing cosmetic procedures. So that, you know, by definition, all that competition definitely drives prices down. Um, There's also, it used to just kind of be, I remember, you know, when I was a young girl, I would look at Teen Vogue and stuff like that. You would see people in magazines and they were photoshopped and makeup and lighting and, but it wasn't necessarily like everyone had surgery. Now with this like era of Instagram influencers and people being very open about the procedures that they've had, um, it's just become incredibly pervasive. And so I think that combined with the fact that now it's, it's more accessible because there's so many more providers doing it, that it's certainly not limited to the upper echelons of, you know, socioeconomic scale at all. Um, you know, which is good. I think it should be more accessible for people. But, you know, I, and I am incredibly biased, but I would say probably more people than not, you know, over the age of maybe 40 have probably had something done. So I'm always very, well, we're in New York. So, you know, that may not be the case everywhere else. Of course. Maybe not so much like middle America, but I feel like on the East coast and the West coast, it's You'd be surprised, <laughs> but but I, I am constantly surprised. You know, especially at, at just simple Botox uh, is way more common than than I would have thought at all. Sure. So, uh, so what is the majority? You mentioned you do a lot of like liposuction type type work. 
what uh, I don't know the difference between types of work. Uh, you know, how would you classify the different types of work and what is kind of the m- most that you do? I assume liposuction and Botox are two separate types of procedures that you do. Are, yeah. there, different, are there different groupings for types of procedures and, and what do you do the most? Yeah, I would say there's probably four big buckets that you can kind of divide cosmetic plastic surgery into. One would be minimally invasive, meaning the injectables, the Botox, the filler, you know, the lasers, that stuff. That would be one bucket. Another bucket would be breast surgery. So everything from breast reductions to breast lifts to breast augmentations to breast reconstruction after cancer. to body, which is kind of the majority of what I do, which is mostly like liposuction, fat um, transfer, um, you know, after massive weight loss or bariatric surgery, kind of skin like procedures that all goes in the body bucket. And then the last one is face. So basically everything above the shoulders, your facelifts, your neck lifts, your eye lifts, your nose jobs, you know, all that kind of stuff. So those are the four big is buckets you can kind of divide everything into so you do a lot of body work then do a lot of body and breast um i do everything obviously but that's kind of my focus yes i noticed your logo on your website was kind of like a curvy midsection there so it's an abdomen very good yeah i can recognize i could definitely recognize that um (laughs) so uh so do you do a lot of botox or you do, you, that's a pretty regular daily, daily thing. It's a regular thing. It's really, it's become just one of the men, like maintenance treatments for most of my patients. Um, it's just something that also brings patients into the office. I mean, I didn't go to medical school and train for 10 years to do Botox, but it's something that much more people are comfortable starting with. And then as they age and as they get more comfortable with the idea of plastic surgery, they kind of migrate further down the line. And then, you know, when they're ready, they'll, you know, get a surgical procedure with me down the road. So I do do a fair amount of Botox and fillers. And a uh, question about liposuction is how often does it, do people gain that weight back? Hmm, and how, do, and how, does, how does, how does that work? A hundred percent. Okay. So um, the liposuction is physically removing fat cells from your body, right? So once they're gone, they're gone. Um, when we do liposuction, we don't remove every last fat cell because you would look ridiculous. If you would literally were skin and muscle or skin and bones, you know, it it doesn't look good. So those fat cells that are left, you can still gain weight. So the way you gain weight is each individual fat cell, you can think of as like a little storage unit. If you eat a whole lot, it's going to store more fat and grow. And then if you lose weight, that cells, you know, shrinks and you, you know, become skinnier. So if I tell my patients all the time, liposuction is not weight loss surgery. It's absolutely not. You still have to maintain a healthy diet and exercise and all that good stuff if you want to keep the results that you get after liposuction. So, you know, some people, unfortunately, do treat it as, you know, almost a maintenance. Um, you know, whenever they gain a little weight, they come in, they get their, you know, second, third, fourth round, which is not fun as the surgeon either, because after every time you do surgery, patients heal, they develop scar tissue, you know, it becomes a little more difficult the second time, the third time, the fourth time around. So it's certainly not something that I want my patients. Is to... there, is there internal scarring? Sorry to cut you off. Internal, meaning, so you're not going, I don't know what you define as internal, but it's under the skin. It's that plain, we call it subcutaneous fat that's under the skin, but above the muscles. So like in the abs or the belly, it'd be under the skin, above the six pack muscles, that area. So we never go internally. You're never going underneath that fascial muscle layer into where the organs are. Um, That's a big no-no in fact, Um, and potentially a big complication. So it's, we only address the superficial fat with liposuction. Now, if you, if you get liposuction and you gain weight again, do you get weird fat? Do you, you get fat? Like, does it go in weird places? It doesn't go into weird places, but you tend to notice it more in areas where you haven't had liposuction. So again, when you're physically removing some of that fat, you don't have as many cells left to grow and shrink. So like, let's say I do liposuction on your abdomen, 
your belly's smaller, you then go and you gain 50 pounds, you're going to notice more of a change in your arms than you will your stomach, even though you're going to get bigger everywhere, just because you still have all the fat cells in your arms, we never remove them with the liposuction. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, and that's, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. So that, that makes sense. Uh, we got a we got a question. Oh, I don't know if I can ask this. Uh, can you <laughs> I'll throw it out there? Can you uh, could you remove cartilage in your nose to uh, make your penis larger? I don't. I, I think I know the answer to that is is a negative. I mean, you could do anything technically. Um, <laughs> no, but I have a, a couple questions. A more it. common way to do penis augmentation is with fillers. So the same stuff that we put in the face to augment the cheekbones or the lips, or you can put that in the penis also. Is that collagen? It's a cousin of collagen. It's called hyaluronidase. There's a couple different products, but that's kind of the most common one. So, yeah. and it's temporary. So if you don't like it. And if you do, you have to keep getting it done. <laughs> so, yeah. I had, I had a few, I didn't actually write all of them down because I, I didn't know we'd kind of go in that territory, but that's what somebody's asking. Um, but uh, so is so I had some weird vaginal questions. Somebody asked about making your vaginal area more puffy. Is that a, is that a thing? Is that just like a filler injection? I, I don't have any idea what they were talking about, so I didn't. But you may know what I'm talking. I about. think what they're referring to is as you age, you do lose some of the fat or the padding down there. So sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable, like with intercourse. So a way to rejuvenate that area is to pad it up a little bit and you can do that with filler you can do that with fat um there's a couple different ways to do that but i think that's what they're referring to okay and then you're saying that basically any of these filler procedures have a timeline on them a lifeline a a lifetime every product we use the majority of filler products yes only last about six months to a year um depending on what product you're using there are a couple that last up to two years and there are some that are permanent but those are less common uh so a couple more questions um can you remove your belly button could you hide a belly button i guess somebody had an ugly belly button they were curious if is that a thing yeah you can do it um in (laughs) fact sometimes yeah i don't know i don't know why anyone want to do it i mean you know it looks strange frankly um, but sometimes it's like a side effect of other abdominal operations. You actually lose your belly button. Your belly button, just this little tiny tether that you had to your mom and the placenta. So there's no functional reason that you need it, but it's just so aesthetically normal to see that. But yeah, you can live perfectly fine without one and you can get rid of it surgically. I think your, your logo has a belly button, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to find some images that I could do a little, little promo with. Um, so I got, I got one of those. Um, and then I don't think this is something that you would specialize in or it would even be in your field, but can you make someone taller? Oh, now I've heard of people. The answer is yes. I mean, you can, yeah, this is not something I would do. Yeah. Um, but, but would that, yeah, would that be plastic surgery? Of course. Yeah, yeah, it would be because, you know, there are people that are born with like two different size legs and, you know, there's a variety of genetic issues that people can have. So, yes, um, I don't do that and I don't know the specifics on it, but it is possible. I've heard a little bit about it. I, I think it involves like either breaking the legs or like cutting the bone in the legs and either inserting things or letting the bones like creating a gap so that the bones bridge that gap. And it sounds like a really horribly painful procedure. Yeah, it's called distraction osteogenesis. We do it in kids a lot of time who have like, again, genetic deformities, smaller jaws, things like that. You actually, it's exactly it. You put in, you have to break the bone. You put in an implant device that slowly distracts them while the bone heals in between and it lengthens the bone. Um, You know, presumably you could do that to make someone taller too. I've never heard of that, but it is. Possible. I've seen pictures of people in the middle of the process. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like it would be really, really painful. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would imagine so. And you're not going to be like feet taller from that. I mean, this is like a matter of inches we're talking about. But yeah. Yeah, I would think like that would have its its max at maybe like two two and a half. I think maybe Especially like I can't. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I got another question because I, you know, I had a couple of these questions, but what is the realm of plastic surgery and how does that differ from, from other surgeries? Like what, yes, what so exactly is plastic surgery? Yo, why is it called plastic surgery? Yeah. So that's a good, that's a good point. So it's actually called plastic and reconstructive surgery. That is the official title of the specialty. So plastic just refers to the fact that everything is moldable, malleable, reconstructible. So it's called plastic surgery because we can reconstruct or restore, you know, form function everywhere on the body. Um, so it's, it's a very broad specialty. Um, and uh, does that answer your question? I could talk about this for an hour, but that's basically what it means. That's, what, that's how much we have. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you get you get 30 minutes left. So. No but, more questions. Just we'll talk about plastic surgery. But that's why it's called that. So it's called plastic surgery because there's a plasticity to. It's to, from the Greek root of plastic, which is exactly plasticity, malleability, kind of remolding that idea of the plastic. So then what would be some some things that would fall out of the spectrum of plastic surgery? Like Where would that spectrum end? um brain surgery <laughs> we don't go that deep <laughs> but there's brain, pla brain plasticity a hundred percent and we actually do remold the skull um for craniosynostosis which is a you know a skull deformity in kids um so we work with neurosurgeons a lot for that but we don't actually touch the brain per se well look I, you know since i obviously am bald um I, I notice, <laughs> I notice I'm doing a lot of the work out here in Jersey on the house myself and uh, keep bumping my head on things <laughs> like really freaking hard. I just bought these uh, padded corner covers for the kitchen cabinets because I'll be working on the countertop and boom, I, I knock my head. Do well, you, yeah, why uh, aren't you? Yeah, she's she beat me to it. <laughs> Do you uh, can't wear a helmet everywhere. Every gotta, I gotta no, you, you, look, it's something we've been telling you for a long time. I, well, look, I got I got a couple of motorcycles. Real estate up there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's, we're a that's, branded help. Yeah, I have a I have a hard hat too. So I've had to I go to the the dump to drop off lots of garbage that won't, I can't normally put on the garbage. And you have to wear this hard hat. So I got this hard hat that I, I wear only to the dump. Um, so it's in great. Condition. Start wearing it more often. <laughs> I, I'm not about to, not about to start wearing it around the, around the house. But uh, have you done these surgeries to re? So I got lucky relatively. I mean, I got some dents in my head, but yeah. you know, when I started shaving my hair, I kind of took it down short to like make sure my head shape was not goofy, and I didn't look like a cone head or something. Do you, is that something that you would, would you reshape somebody's head or, or at least for my sake, like fill in some divots? Is that a thing? <laughs> you can, superficially, you can do some stuff to adult skulls, but really it has to be done as a child before these sutures, which are the soft spots and the fontanelles on the skull harden. Um, so most of that stuff, like reshaping skulls is done when you're a child. Um, now, superficially, we can grind down things. If you have a bump, we can kind of, Put a little reinforcement if you have a divot but we're not going to completely change the shape of your head at this point in your life uh, so, it's too, so so i get lucky but but you could yeah. you could fill in a divot right a little plate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Right. put some plastic like you know plas so basically got, plastering I, a you know a hole in the wall kind of thing i've got a question that's got a couple layers to it but you were talking about how plastic surgeries become more prevalent among just the general population the last couple of years and and you pin that somewhat to Instagram and social media um, but there's al there's always been this trend of attention in the media with plastic surgery of the some of the people that go way too far with it mm -hmm. um, and stop looking even remotely real and one of the questions that I have for you is like Every, every profession has its own kind of code of ethics in terms of what work you can and can't do. And I was wondering, what is the code of ethics in plastic surgery in terms of when do you tell a patient, I know you can afford this, but I'm not going to do this procedure for you? Yeah. Well, we all, you know, there is a code of ethics. There is, you know, 
we're always, it's always included in like our testing and stuff too. Although how you can test someone's or teach someone ethics, I don't know how that works, but I mean, I could just speak for myself, you know, you have to have your moral compass and, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it should never be about the money, right? It's always about patient safety and it's about making sure that you both have reasonable expectations that you can achieve. So, you know, everyone, I guess, operates a little differently, but that's always kind of the baseline that I approach every patient with that I think, you know, most respectable, reputable plastic surgeons would also say. So, you know, a lot of times, yes, we can do something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should or we will. So. So, so I, but I noticed there's, I mean, I walk around the streets in Manhattan and I notice more over the last maybe three, maybe four years, there's some crazier, more extreme body shapes. Yes. And that's like big asses, big boobs coupled with unnaturally tiny waists what's what do you think is driving that is that all like pop culture so there are always trends right i mean i think there's always going to be whatever's so hot right now i think that has been amplified again by the whole influencer instagram snapchat all that good stuff um what you're, I mean, you know, if you think back to like the nineties, everyone had this like waif figure, you know, like the Kate Mosses of the world and big boobs, right? That was like the look everybody wanted. Well, that's just swung a little bit the other way. And now everybody wants a perfect hourglass, meaning they still want to be big boobs, small waist, big bottom. So it's just what the trend is now. Do I think this is going to be, you know, indefinite? Absolutely not. I'm sure it's going to swing back another way. Um, but you know, many, while the, what you're referring to is the Brazilian butt lift. So that's what the procedure is called. Um, this is actually, I mean, people have been doing a Brazilian butt lift since like the sixties. So this is not a new operation in any way. It just kind of struck here, uh, with the Kim Kardashian, JLo, Cardi B, Nicki Minaj kind of era where they're very upfront about what they've done. They post their body all over Instagram. It's what everyone kind of sees and models themselves or wants to model themselves off of. So so, uh, where where does the content come from? So somebody that doesn't have a big ass, Mm -hmm. where are are you putting in like a silicone implant or... Where are we getting the, you taking yeah. out of one, are you robbing Peter to pay Paul? Well, the, yes. Maybe, so, maybe, maybe Peter's paying you to, to take from him, but. Yeah. So there's two, you can augment or make something bigger in basically two ways, right? You can put something foreign in the body that doesn't belong there, like an implant or silicone injections, whatever. Um, or you can redistribute fat. So most of the time a Brazilian butt lift um, involves liposuction of taking fat away from areas that the patient doesn't want it, and then processing that fat and reinjecting it into areas where they do want it, like the butt, like the breast. And is that is that fat live then in the body when it goes back in? And what is the re? I don't. Yeah, what does processing mean in this context? Yeah. So again, these are all very good questions. Um, so no, as soon as you pull that fat out of the body, it, you've taken it away from its blood supply. It is basically dead. So you need to, we, we call it, it's like sowing seeds, right? So you, when you're sucking that fat out, the processing means we're taking out like gristly fat, we're taking out oily fat, we're taking out some, you know, blood, we're taking out some numbing medicine. So it's this big concoction that we have to then get down to that good, you know, healthy fat that has a chance of surviving when we put it back in. So that's what the processing means. And often, you know, Mm -hmm. that means washing it, whatever. I mean, there's different techniques of doing that. Once you have that good, healthy fat, then it's like sowing seeds, putting it back in the body. So you have to put in a lot more than what's actually going to grow because each one of those little fat cells needs to kind of reconstitute a blood supply, you know, and, and take hold um, in order to survive and live. So what happens a lot of times when you transfer fat, 
you're going to over fill or you're going to put in more fat than you actually want because you know anywhere from 40 to 60% of that fat is going to die and not make it because again it's like so well yeah what happens to that fat after it dies like you, it dies your body you, reabsorbs it or it becomes scar tissue or you know it just do you do you pee it out or fart it out or metabolize no. it in some some way no your body breaks it down and then yeah it goes into the lymphatic system you reabsorb it and you know and it's uh, like a bruise, just like, you know, anytime you have any kind of injury. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're kind of describing this processing of, of the fat and I'm getting a bit like, no, I'm just thinking like, <laughs> you just like get pots and pans on the stovetop. <laughs> there's no pots and pans. Sometimes James, there's a sieve. <laughs> and James and I have seen Strainer. fight club, fight club, the movie a handful of times. So, when we think of liposuction and things like that, have you seen Fight Club? Of course, yeah. Okay, I assume so. I think everybody's seen it. Um, but yeah, I just that... think about making soap. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that fat is soap, basically. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I had a question about regulation in your industry. Sure. When it when it comes, so I'm you know in real estate, if you tell me you want to live in a neighborhood, I can't basically steer you to a different neighborhood. Um, but when it comes to, you know, what James was asking, do you ever advise people like they shouldn't do that? Is there any like code of ethics or, or something that's, that's around that, that, that like is well known or something you have to be licensed for in that respect? Like advising yeah, I mean, people? there's definitely a code of ethics. Like you can't date your patients. Like there are, there are very like some black and white rules, but in terms of like your judgment on whether or not you should do a procedure, that's a lot more gray area. Um, you know, and again, I would argue you can't really teach someone ethics or morals. So, you know, you're going to have a range, but uh, most people who have gotten this far in life have some kind of moral compass and generally, you know. Um, How often do you turn patients down and say, I don't think that's a good procedure for you? Yeah, I mean, it, more often than you think, you know, like a perfect, like a great example, and this is very common, is someone comes in and they're morbidly obese and they want a tummy tuck. You know, number one, you're probably not healthy enough for surgery. Number two, you're going to get a terrible result because you're overweight, you know, and a tummy tuck is not going to make you a skinny person. So, you know, that's a very common conversation that I have with people. And a tummy tuck is just lipo on the stomach? No, a tummy tuck removes extra skin, extra fat, and also repairs the six pack muscles, um, which a lot of times after either massive weight gain or after having a baby, stuff like that, the muscles get spread apart and it gives you, it weakens your abdominal wall and you get a bulge. So a tummy tuck is much more involved than just liposuction. So okay, you, cool. I didn't know. So yeah. they've passed the threshold that, that you can help them. They're too fat to... <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not in their best interest. They're not going to be happy, and I'm really tough... doing them a service, right? Like, well, yeah, I'm just thinking it's got to be a very tough conversation, and also, you know, assuming it's so tough because you're recognizing how difficult it is to receive that information. Of course, you know, and maybe there's other procedures they can they can get so uh, like curved mirrors, <laughs> uh, sex change operations. Is that uh, is that in your wheelhouse? Do you have any yes. experience with that? Yes. Uh, and what are your thoughts on it? Become, again, I think with our culture moving and, you know, that being much more accepted in our culture and much more people open and, um, you know, out of the closet or however you want to say, um, it has become very uh, common. Um, it's also now covered by most insurance plans, um, which also, again, the accessibility issue, it becomes more accessible for many more patients because of that. Um, so yes, I do transgender surgery or gender affirming surgery. Um, and, uh, yeah. So the, the, the new word for the new, it would be called gender affirming surgery now. Correct. And is that irreversible? Nothing is irreversible. Uh, however, you don't want to have to be in that situation. So that's a good reason that's patient selection is really important when it comes to that, because you want to see that the patient, um, you know, is followed by someone for that, meaning, uh, be it a, 
mental health therapist, a, you know, a, a specialist that can prescribe like testosterone or, you know, et cetera, someone that can write a letter of support for them, meaning that this person has lived in such and such a way for such and such a time. And this isn't just a transient desire. Um, you want to, you know, you want to make sure that this person is in a good place generally and that they're not going to change their mind in two years and be, you know, just kidding. I, I really, you know, yeah, I mean, identify as this now. So um, there's a lot of homework that goes into it. Um, thankfully, I have other people generally do that and they're ready to go by the time they meet me. But you want to make sure you do your homework. But that's mostly just to have documents on your side in case you're sued and be like, here's everything that they sent me. I did everything that I could to verify. Of course as so much of medicine is, unfortunately, but it's a reality. And also, you, you again, I would be the one reversing it. So I don't want to be in that position in two years. Um, you know, it's surgery is still surgery, even if it's cosmetic. So yeah, maybe you just yeah. leave like some extra skin, like a, a good tailor leaves a little <laughs> just extra, extra fabric. <laughs> just, well, I know, you, I know you're getting this suit taken in, but I'm not going to actually cut the fabric because I hear it. <laughs> at least that's what my tailor tells me <laughs> um so uh question about like cryogenics or cryo freezing or i don't whatever this industry where it would i don't I, is it bullshit are they freezing fat off of people so cryolipolysis is a real technology it is a real thing well it's let me ask you hold on let me ask you first sure. do you do you do it and no. offer it okay all right all right now i'm open. <laughs> now i'm open your answer yeah uh, it is a real thing. It works for some people. Uh, the thought process is there's an external device, almost like, like an ultrasound probe, if you've ever seen one of those. And it freezes the fat, and then your body reabsorbs the fat that has died, just like when you do a fat transfer and part of that fat doesn't die. So um, that's the thought process. Um, unfortunately, there is a complication you can get from doing that, which actually causes the opposite effect. It causes this hypertrophy or growth of fat cells. Um, so, you know, that is a potential, which is exactly the opposite of why the patient's seeking it out. It also can really only address the very, very superficial fat. It can't go very deep. So if you have a lot of extra subcutaneous fat, you know, you're very thick, it's not going to be able to deal with the deeper layers of fat. So yes, in the right patient, in the right situation, it could be a useful tool. Um, it's not something I do. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I, just thinking of the conversation that the patient has with you when they come in three weeks later and they're even fatter. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I have a patient right now who had it done for, you know, her kind of double chin area and it grew. So now she's coming to me to have it you know, actually taken care of. <laughs> uh, and is that uh, comparable pricing wise to regular liposuction? No, it's much cheaper usually, although the, they get you because a lot of these treatments, whether it's you know laser, M-sculpt, old therapy, cryolipolysis, you have to go back for several treatments to really see much of a difference. So, you know, once you factor all that in, it becomes a similar pricing, but it is more minimally invasive. You don't have to have a surgery. You don't have to have scars on your body. So people, you know, will often opt for something like that before, you know, well, we haven't really talked it. about price at all. So like, what are so like, like a basic liposuction of like the stomach area? How much is that going to cost? So variable. It's so variable. Ballpark on, well, it depends on, are you doing it under general anesthesia? Or are you doing it awake? Because then that makes a, you know, a price difference. Are you doing it in Manhattan or are you doing it in the DR? You know, so it's very variable. Um, you know, and that's why a lot of people actually leave the kind of tri-state area and either fly to South Florida or fly to a different country and have things done because they're price shopping, which in my opinion is terrible because it's your body. You know, you should think of think of, value something a little bit more than just the cost of a procedure. Well, but generally, it does it varies wildly. Yeah, generally when you're price shopping, you're you're very cost conscious and typically when it costs less and i find this in many aspects of life typically when it costs less it isn't as good now that's not always the case no and and oftentimes not. when it's super expensive the quality is is not there either 
Sure. Um, we were, I think James, you and I were talking about clothes the other day. Like if you buy oh. really cheap clothes, you're going to get bad clothes. If you buy reasonably priced clothes, you can generally get some pretty solid clothes. But oftentimes when you buy super high end designer stuff, it, it's not any better. And sometimes it's actually worse than the kind of regular, regular prices. Right. Or like the maintenance of it is higher. So like, you know, you <laughs> not- get a really expensive thing and you can only have like a dry cleaned in a certain way. And, you know, it, so yeah. you're right. It, there is a range and, uh, you know, but I think you also don't make a decision just purely based on price. So if people it's are having it while they're awake, would you just be using like local anesthetic, like Novocaine or something? So usually you try to get some other kind of either oral or light IV sedation on board as well, just to make sure that they're kind of comfortable because yes, you're going to use a local anesthetic. The problem is until that local anesthetic kicks in, they're feeling everything, right? So you try to get them a little bit relaxed with some oral, like some pills, or maybe a little bit of light IV sedation, and then you're gonna use that local anesthetic and then do your surgery. Now, it's a little bit of an art to it, to be honest. For liposuction, are most people uh, under general anesthesia? No, there's a lot of awake liposuction. There's a lot of companies solely created and dedicated to that model. So it is, it's very common, but you have to have a little bit of experience doing that. And there's a little bit of an art to getting the patient comfortable enough to get through it. And why would you, I mean, for me, I just, I would instantly think I would want to be knocked the fuck out. Like I want nothing to do with being awake for this. So why would you want to be awake? Would it just be for the dangers of going under or, or would it be mostly cost? I think a lot of it is cost. It's cheaper because again, you're cutting out that anesthesiology and all that cost. Um, some people are just afraid of going under being, you know, put to sleep and have a breathing tube put down their throat. So that's another thing. Um, some people associate it with less downtime because then you don't also have to recover from being under and all the medications and tranquilizers and stuff they give you while you're asleep. So several reasons why people would elect to have it done awake. Um, but again, you want to make sure you're going somewhere where they're very comfortable doing that and it's, they've got the system down and they can keep you comfortable through the procedure. What are they using for the IV sedation? Is it just like a, like a medium dose of benzos? Yeah, so I use mostly oral. I mean, there's a variety, there's a ton of stuff, but yeah, it's usually something like a narcotic for pain, a benzo for you know anxiety, um, you know, some kind of anti-emetic just to make sure that you know you're not getting nauseous from everything. Um, so some cocktail with those three things is usually what it involves. So I had, we got we got about eight minutes left before we hit the hit the mark here, but I got two questions that I wanted to definitely get in, <clears throat> and I wanted to talk a little bit about traveling for price shopping, uh, and then uh, you know what are the best marks? So my sister lived in uh, Fort Lauderdale area, which is just north of Miami, and there's a lot of a lot of plastic surgery going on down there. Uh, she's not in that field. I think she may have considered it, um, but I'm not I'm not too certain. But I know she doesn't work in that field. But there's a lot of that down there. You drive down the street and there's clinics. You see signs for them all, all over the place. Um, it, like you don't see that in New York. There's no there's no signs. Oh, South for- Florida is the capital mm-hmm. for United States co- cosmetic surgery. It's where the most procedures are done. So um, yes. so very unique. So a lot of people travel from outside of the South Florida area to go there, probably because pricing is good. Correct. Now, is there general U.S. regulations that makes getting procedures done in the U.S. safer and superior than getting them done elsewhere? Well, there is a lot of licensure regulation, and a lot of that is state by state, so it's not completely uniform across the country. But yes, generally speaking, if you're going to call yourself a board-certified physician, (laughs) you had to go through all the steps to get board-certified. If you're going to, uh, if you're going to have your surgery done in a, you know, an accredited operating room, there are certain steps that have to go through to call yourself an accredited operating room. The problem occurs when people just go to, you know, Dr. Wizard and they do no research and that person's not board certified and they're not operating in accredited operating room. And then that's where people get into trouble. Um, but, you know, 
the titles in this country mean something. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't translate to other countries. And that doesn't mean that there aren't perfectly qualified, wonderful plastic surgeons in other countries, but the, the levels or the licensure are not the same. So, you know, it's kind of like buyer beware if you're gonna leave the country um, and you have to do your homework even while you're here. Because there are a lot of people who are not trained as plastic surgeons marking themselves as you know, cosmetic surgeons, whatever that means. Maybe well, how can you that. determine whether or not the, the person that you're talking to knows what they're doing? Well, you can first of all start with, are they board certified in a specialty that I'm going to them for? And that is common knowledge. You can Google that. You can look it up on the American, you know, boards um, website. Um, so that's your first step. And you're right. I mean, that is just it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you go to that surgeon, you're going to get the result you want or they're the best person for that, you know, procedure, but it's a good way to start. And you know, that person that there's many checks and balances for that person to get to that point. Um, so it's a good start. And then there's word of mouth, you know, obviously there's this review, this is the era of reviews, they can make or break you. So you go online, you check and see what other people have said about them. Um, that's what I was thinking is you want to do as much research as possible. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just like when you buy a product on Amazon, you want to look at the one star and the really crappy reviews and see if those people are just full of crap, yeah. um, or if they're real severe problems and you're seeing a trend. Right. So my, my next question was then what, so we're in New York, we see a lot of, a lot of people go to the Dominican Republic. I think that's kind of the probably second biggest destination that, that I know of outside of Florida. Um, yeah. I assume it must cost a lot less down there. Where else are people going? Uh, a lot of South American countries. So Colombia, uh, Brazil, uh, Venezuela, um, you know, not so much in Central America, but yeah, Dominican Republic, uh, Mexico, Mexico is another big one. Um, so south. <laughs> so yeah. Um, what about Asia, or is it just the cost of travel there is too expensive? I would well, imagine it would be somewhat common there. South Korea is another big plastic surgery culture, um, so they do a lot of plastic surgery in South Korea, but it doesn't it, it doesn't draw a lot of Americans. There's a lot more closer options. Um, <clears throat> Interesting. Any. Uh, before we wrap up, any crazy stories that you that you want to share? Um, there are many. I have many from my trauma days, but I'll save those because for anyone who might be squeamish. But um, I took care of this patient as a resident who, before the fat transfer era was really big, what people would do for either buttock augmentation or whatever is they would have silicone injected into them. And not like medical grade silicone, like just liquid silicone injected into their butt. So I took care of this patient in residency who had had just all these silicone injections all over the butt and hips. And what happens is if you're just putting liquid silicone into your tissues, that doesn't stay where you want it to stay. What happens is it gets absorbed into your lymphatic system and then it goes and travels all throughout your body. So this particular person had had in someone's garage somewhere, non-medical grade silicone injected into their butt, had traveled down their legs, clogged and mucked up their entire lymphatic system. What happens after that is you're, you're, you swell, you get lymphedema, and then your tissue turns into almost like a wooden texture. It's a very terrible situation. And then you get wounds and that you can't heal and all. It's, it's just a terrible situation. So this person had had basically both legs wooden wounds everywhere and there's no cure for this you can't just give them some antidote and it clears all the silicone out the only way to get rid of it is to surgically debride or remove it which is then disfiguring and again you still have to heal from wounds so it's a it's a disaster and word of warning for anyone you know getting silicone injections from a non-medical provider is a terrible idea <laughs> so, um final question yes gotta ask this one have you had any work done have i not yet um i'm not ruling it out in my future um but not yet i'm 39 and hopefully very tactful well look it's it's a fair question to ask if someone who does it for a living like 
Would you do it? Would you, what procedures would you have done to yourself? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'll see how I age. I mean, if my neck is down here in 20 years, I'm probably going to get a neck lift. Um, but, you know, it, I'm going to try to age as gracefully as I can and see how it goes. <laughs> it's going pretty well for you so far. Well, thank you. Uh, when you mentioned, I got a minute to, to kill here, but you mentioned uh, injecting silicone. James, I don't know if you remember when I had a radiator leak, but I had heard that if you crack an egg and you drop it in your radiator... <laughs> <laughs> that the egg will that the egg will basically seal up and, the cracks seal up the cracks. Yeah. So I, you know i i dropped like maybe four or five eggs into that radiator over the course of a week and destroyed yeah, then your and water pump broke water pump broke radiator broke yeah it did a lot of a lot of internal damage so it reminds me a lot of the the yeah, silicone the great um, analogy <laughs> but, yeah, but look uh dr lauren of uh, harmony plastic surgery thank you very much it was nice having you uh, I, I had a lot of questions and, and, and you answered all of them. So I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, hopefully maybe we'll have you back soon. You can share some crazy stories from the trauma days. All right, guys, uh, that's it. We are out. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Adios. All right, my friends, that concludes the end of episode 147. Thank you for joining. If you made it this far, please like share, subscribe, comment, anything you can, any interactions. I feel like I'm begging him. I promise I'm not, but, uh, but we do appreciate it. So thank you very much. And, uh, I'll see you guys next time. As always, I had fun. Thank you. I like PBR. I just got priced out of it.